Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Simon Wiesenthal was an Australian Jew who was imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Uh, He wrote a book called The Sunflower, and in that book he tells part of his story. Uh, His story begins when he is taken from the concentration camp to a makeshift temporary hospital in order to do cleanup work. But while he's at the hospital going about his business, uh, a German nurse uh, orders him to follow her. And if if you were a Jew in World War II, you followed uh, the instructions from Germans. So he went with her, and she led him into a room where a Nazi soldier named Karl Seidel was dying. Simon was brought there really on just pure chance uh, because in his dying moments, Carl had asked the nurse to, quote, bring me a Jew. So Carl, the soldier, had been mortally wounded in battle and his face was wrapped entirely in bandages, leaving holes only for his mouth, nose, and ears. And so there Simon sat uh, before this dying German soldier, And for the next several hours, Simon listened to Carl tell his story. Carl was was an only child. He grew up in a Christian home. His parents were not supporters of the Nazi party or Hitler's rise to power, but nevertheless, at age 15, Carl decided to join the Hitler Youth against his parents' wishes. By age 18, he was then a member of the Nazi SS. But there in that hospital room, he was dying, and he wanted to confess the atrocities that he had committed against Jewish people, but he wanted to confess those things to a Jew. Thus, his request to bring me a Jew. It didn't matter much who it was, only that they were Jewish. Among the stories that Carl told to Simon uh, was, was this one. It was a night when the Nazi soldiers had driven 300 Jews into a small three-story house with whips. And then after locking them in the house, they set the house on fire. In his book, The Sunflower, he quotes Carl telling this story. So here's Carl recounting this story. We heard screams and saw the flames eat away from floor to floor. And we had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape from that blazing hell. The screams from that house were horrible. Behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were alight. And by his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes and then jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. And then from the other windows fell burning bodies, and we shot them. Confessions like this one went on for hours. Simon Wiesenthal never said a word. What he did do was hold Carl's hand, and he would brush the flies away from Carl as they had landed on his face and head. 
And occasionally Simon would even offer Carl a drink. But Simon never said a word. At last, Carl looks at Simon as best as he can through the small holes. And he says this, I am left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are here with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. And in the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and to beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that I, what I am asking is almost too much for you. But without your answer, I cannot die in peace. After Carl had said this, Simon got up in silence and he left the room. Carl died that night. Against all odds, though Simon survived the Holocaust and later went and visited Carl's mother to see if the story that he was told was true, and in fact it was, Carl was an only child who grew up in church and his parents did not support Hitler or the Nazis. And during their meeting, Carl's mother kept trying to assure Simon that Carl was a good boy and simply wasn't capable of doing anything bad. And again, Simon remained silent and left with hardly a word. Simon's book, The Sunflower, closes with a provoking question, and it is this. He goes from telling the story to talking directly to the reader. It says this, Ought I to have forgiven him? Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience of the reader of this book just as much as it once challenged my heart and mind. For the crux of the matter is this, of course, it is the question of forgiveness. Forgetting is something that takes uh, time alone, that forgetting is something that time alone takes care of, but forgiveness is an act of volition, and only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. You who have just read this sad and tragic episode in my life, can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the, cru the crucial question, what would I have done? We're in a series on forgiveness. Last week, what we learned is that forgiveness is refusing to respond with hurt or respond to hurt and violence and offense that comes into our life, refusing to respond to those things with further hurt and violence and offense. And we began the series by talking about this, that, that forgiveness is absorbing the blow in order to end the cycle of revenge and violence. And if we're going to talk about forgiveness, we began, of course, by talking about the forgiveness of Christ toward us, for this is precisely what Christ has done. And so we learned that Christ's only disposition toward us is love. God's only disposition toward you is love. And this allows us then to accept his forgiveness and to offer ourselves forgiveness. But in this second week of the series, what I want to begin to do and to explore is how we begin to forgive others and the call to forgive others. And the truth is that forgiving petty offenses is usually no trouble. We, we, uh, we 
call that up to human decency, that when someone has a petty offense against us, we, of course we want to forgive them. But the real rub of forgiveness and the Christian call of forgiveness is when we are deeply hurt by an offense. When the offense is betrayal or backstabbing or lying about you or your character, then the question of offense becomes much more complicated and much more difficult. In cases of abuse and, and real physical violence, it becomes much harder to begin to talk about forgiveness. Or perhaps the difficulty of forgiveness comes when the offense happens over and over and over again, that they just keep lying to you, they just keep breaking trust. What should we do in those cases? You see, the real question, the real issue, the real crux of Simon's question to the reader of the sunflower is, what is the extent of forgiveness? Does forgiveness have proper limits? Are, are there limits to the forgiveness that we are called to offer? And, and when the offense is great, it, the question is, is it always right to forgive? And are some things just simply too hurtful to ever to be forgiven? We need the wisdom of God when it comes to these difficult questions. But we need not only the wisdom of God, but we need the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Just a short passage of scripture I wanna read this morning. It says this. Then Peter came up to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? That's a good question, right? It's an honest question. How many times should I forgive a brother or sister of mine who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answers, I tell you the truth, or I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Jewish law, of which Peter was no doubt familiar, uh, required that you forgive someone of the same offense three times. But the law outlines that on the fourth time, you should not forgive them. Now, Peter was catching on to that uh, Jesus of Nazareth was a bit of a revolutionary. I mean, this was a radical guy. And so when he poses the question to Jesus, he comes up with uh, an intended response or a response that he would expect uh, to hear from Jesus. And he extends that, that rule of the law to seven times, and he thinks he's doing pretty well. <laughs> he thinks he's being a little overly generous. Should I forgive even up to seven times? To which Jesus replies, no, 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 77 times. And I got to tell you, I love the NIV translation, uh, but I think it's got it wrong here. There's a big debate about how the proper translation of this. Should it be 77 or should it be 70 times 7? Those of you who are awesome at math, that's 490 times, Right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Forgive someone of the same thing 490 times. And there's, there's a lot of debate about which is the right translation. And the NIV goes with 77. I'm more convinced by 70 times 7. 
But the reality is this, the point is the same. Regardless of how you translate it, the point is the same. And you might imagine Peter's response is actually very similar to the response that we might have. Kind of like, uh, I imagine Peter, he was a spicy guy, right? So I imagine Peter saying, what? Are you kidding me? How could I possibly forgive someone that many times? Right? And there's also a real logistical problem that comes with Jesus' generosity and grace that he's trying to get Peter on board with, right? Maybe some of you have thought about this. There's a real logistical problem. How in the world am I going to keep track of how many times I have forgiven people? (laughs) And I know that some of you are engineers in here, and you probably get really excited about developing a forgiveness spreadsheet, Right, and you're like, I got this, you know? I'm supposed to forgive people 490 times, like Excel is calling my name, right? Uh, I know that some of you are responding that way, but, but this is a luxury that they didn't have, right? And so there's, there's a sort of a theological problem of, or a philosophical problem of how could I ever be that kind? But there's also a real logistical problem of how in the world am I gonna keep track of this? Of like when, how many times I have forgiven who for what offense? And I would actually submit to you that the logistical problem of Jesus' generosity and grace is actually part of the point. You see, this isn't the first time that we've heard 70 times 7 in Scripture. Uh, The first time that we hear this this kind of formula of 70 times 7 is actually all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter four, beginning with verse 23, says this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 70 times sevenfold. Interesting. You see, here's uh, Lamech, the guy way back there in the Old Testament, uh, and he's boasting about how he will avenge himself 70 times sevenfold to anyone who hurts or attacks him. He's like, say, hey, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then mine is exponentially greater. So basically, don't mess with me. Now, it's funny because who he's bragging to is his wives. <laughs> and then you're just like, hmm. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll, we'll let that just lie right there. Uh, but he's boasting and he's saying, if anyone comes against me, then my revenge will be ever greater. It actually reveals Lamech's heart, doesn't it? It reveals a heart completely bent on revenge. A heart bent not on just getting even, but on getting ahead. You've heard this narrative before, right? It's in almost every movie starring Liam Neeson. (laughs) And it's clear that for Lamech, in order to get things made right, revenge must increase. That's the heart of Lamech's idea and what his mindset. And so what Jesus does is, is actually quite brilliant. He picks up on this exact same phrase, 70 times seven, when asked about the limits of forgiveness. But in, so doing, in doing so, he has this brilliant churn of phase, a phrase that is meant to churn Lamech's revenge and the attitude of revenge up on its head. And so ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's presenting forgiveness as the antonym to to revenge. And as people who are called to walk in the ways of Christ, we are called then to be Lamech's polar opposite. That, That whatever Lamech's heart and mind was filled with, revenge, someone has to pay. If you mess with me, I'm gonna get you. 
that attitude, the people of God are to display and to embody the exact opposite. In other words, we are called to be a people that desire the increase of forgiveness and grace, not vengeance and hate. It's as though Jesus is saying this in this brilliant turn of phase. It's as though he's saying this. Living in the ways that increase vengeance will only lead to a world that is filled with corruption and violence. That is for long, as long as your attitude is someone has to pay, then guess what? The, the world and your world and your life are just gonna spiral into corruption and violence. But if you live in ways that desire the increase of forgiveness, then that will restore the world. In other words, Jesus' point is not so much keep a spreadsheet and keep track. Jesus' point is, if you're counting, you've missed it. <laughs> if, you, if you come away from this teaching and say, okay, I'm gonna start counting so I can follow the letter of the law, then Jesus is actually saying forgiveness isn't in your heart at all because forgiveness is the antonym to revenge. And so he's talking about a heart matter. And let's be honest for a moment. This is deeply, deeply challenging. And it's challenging because forgiveness is one of those things that's really, really easy to talk about, but it's really hard to live out. It's really easy to sit in a sanctuary at church full of friends and say, oh, forgiveness will save the world. <laughs> and then when you are hurt, or someone stabs you in the back, or someone lies about you or your character, or someone abuses you, then it becomes a whole different story. In fact, just a small exercise to get you to recognize the radical nature of what Jesus, Jesus is calling us to. I want you to take a moment, just a brief moment, a few seconds, to think about the person or the group that has hurt you the most. And then ask yourself this question. Is it difficult to desire forgiveness and not revenge? I'm serious, let's take a moment. If you're anything like me, the answer is, yeah, it's tremendously difficult to take a person or a group of people that has hurt you and then to think about offering forgiveness and not wishing harm upon them or revenge in some way. It's a difficult thing. Part of Jesus' response to Peter Peter's important question is, in fact, an allusion to Lamech's revenge, but part of it is also to, meant to present a number so big that it challenges our hearts. And it calls us to expand our imaginations. In, in other words, what Jesus is doing in this response is he's pushing the boundary of what the people of God are called to forgive. And he is encouraging us to always seek to find a way to, to forgive. And he is suggesting that the possibilities of forgiveness are endless. That's radical. 
He's suggesting that the possibilities of forgiveness are endless. And if you're anything like me, when you come to a text like this, you want a reasonable response, like go to forgiveness, but oh, kind of up to this point, then no more. <laughs> but the more that I looked for that in my study, the more I couldn't find it. <laughs> the more that I wanted my preconceived conclusion to come to pass with my study, the more it wasn't there. The more that came about that the call of Jesus to forgive is radical. And perhaps that's because we have received radical forgiveness. That the ways in which we have affronted God are, 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 are grotesque, and yet Jesus offers us forgiveness. In response to Simon Wiesenthal's question, what would you have done, and can I or should I have forgiven? They did something interesting. Just a few years after that book was published, they came out with a second edition. And the second edition included a symposium of answers to Simon's question. So they gathered 53 prominent thinkers that represented different, all the different major world religions, and they were asked to write an essay answering Simon's question, should I have forgiven? Of the 53, nine were unsure, and they could not determine that if in this circumstance and in this situation, if forgiveness was right or wrong or even possible. Their essay simply said, this is, this is too complicated to land on either side. 28 of the 53 said that forgiveness was either not possible or in this case wasn't even morally right. That the offense was too harsh and it would be morally wrong to offer forgiveness. 16 said that forgiveness was at least possible in this situation. Of the 16, 13 were Christian and three were Buddhists. Of note is that none of the respondents that called and identified themselves as Christians said that forgiveness wasn't possible. As I said last week, central to the Christian faith is forgiveness. If you take forgiveness out of the Christian message, you have nothing left but a skeleton of, of a religion. The kind of forgiveness that we are called to as a people of God is radical. You might even call it unreasonable or reckless. But Jesus calls us to forgiveness that surpasses human decency and moves into the realm of the radical nature of followers of the way, right? Before the term Christian was ever coined, the followers of Christ were called followers of the way. That is to say that Christ has kind of paved a path for us and we then are called to walk in his steps by the power of his spirit to walk in ways that are, that just oftentimes don't seem to make any sense. This is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus invites us into. Even when the offense is great. And he calls us to this because forgiveness changes the world and rewrites the narrative of evil. I want you to hear that. Forgiveness changes the world and rewrites 
the narrative of evil. I want to talk... I want to talk a little bit more about this next week. Next week, there's gonna, we're going to talk about practical forgiveness. And so we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts. How do you go about forgiving? Um, what are some steps to take, kind of some handles to grab onto? We've, we've talked for two weeks just about philosophy of forgiveness and, and theology of forgiveness. And next week is the real nuts and bolts. But I want to say this. Everyone and every offense should seek to be restored by forgiveness. But not everyone should be returned to positions of power. Right, so, so when we're hurt and when there is an offense, particularly in, in situations of abuse, there is a person in power taking advantage of and violating someone under them, over which they have influence and power and physical strength often. When that is committed, as the people of God, we need to say that forgiveness and restoration is always possible. But forgiveness does not mean returning that person to that position of power. Are you with me? In other words, yes, we are called to be reckless in our forgiveness, but we're not called to be stupid. <laughs> and sometimes, particularly in the evangelical strain of the church of which we are a part, I don't like the term evangelical anymore, but we, we won't get into all that. Uh, but in the church, we, we often sort of balloon forgiveness to say, since we've forgiven this person, we should just put them right back where they were. And we don't need to do that. Authentic forgiveness can take place without returning an offender to a position of power. Are you with me? I feel like I needed to say that. We might try to unpack that a little bit more next week. I got so much I want to say next week. I'm having a hard time. Like thinking, should we just extend this for the rest of the year and talk about forgiveness? Or like, what should we do? Uh, the real part of sermon, sermon uh, giving is not like what to say, but it's like often it's like what not to say, right? Uh, and so whenever you're thinking, oh, you know, he didn't say that or he didn't cover that, uh, it's, not, it's not always because I haven't thought about it. Sometimes that's the case. Like, hey, I didn't never thought about that. Uh, but it's more often the case, I, it just something has to hit the cutting floor because you guys don't want to be here all day, right? Um, so that's, that's, there you go. There's a little like sliver into the life of a preacher. So let's get back on track. Um, so he has called us to this radical forgiveness because forgiveness changes the world and rewrites the narrative. It rewrites the narrative. On October 2nd, 2000, 2006, a guy named Charles Roberts walked into a schoolhouse, an Amish schoolhouse near Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. He walked into that schoolhouse with a nine millimeter handgun, a 12 gauge shotgun, a rifle, two knives, and 600 rounds of ammunition there were 25 children in the schoolhouse. He ordered everyone to lay face down, facing the chalkboard, and then he released the teacher and all of the boys, leaving 10 young girls. He bound them with duct tape and shot each of them in the head. Five died 
Miraculously, five survived before he turned the gun on himself. Charles Roberts was a dairy truck driver and a father of three. He was married, he attended church regularly, but he held on to bitterness that absolutely rotted his soul. You see, nine years before he walked into that schoolhouse, his firstborn child, a daughter, had died 20 minutes after birth. He and his wife, Amy, grieved and went on to have three more children, and on the surface, everything was fine. But Charles never got over the death of his firstborn daughter, and he allowed bitterness and anger to consume him for nine years, and it turned him into a monster. He was driven by an ideology of hate that says someone has to pay for the death of my daughter. And that is the liturgy of revenge and unforgiveness. It is the liturgy of someone has to pay. And when a whole culture is oriented toward revenge, that is the battle cry of that culture. Someone has to pay. And when your refrain is someone has to pay, the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the anger absolutely rots your soul. The image of God in, each of, in you is depleted and depleted and depleted until it's almost just not recognizable. And you become less and less and less human. For Charles Roberts, the young girls at the school are the ones who had to pay for the death of his daughter nine years previous. And the truth is, that could have been the end of the story. Just another headline in a long line of senseless violence in our country. But that wasn't the end of the story. This was in an Amish schoolhouse in a small town in Pennsylvania. And against all odds and against all outside of the realm of possibility, this is what happens next. Within hours of the incident, a group of men from the Amish community in Nickel Mines show up at Amy Roberts' house, the wife of the gunman. And they show up at her house not to riot not to offer shouts of anger, but they show up at her house with gifts to show forgiveness. And to say to this mourning wife that they have forgiven her husband and held no animosity toward her. And that they really hoped that she would stay in town because they had been there for so long. In fact, people from the Amish community also visited Robert's parents who were right there in that area in order to show forgiveness and to support them as well. It was a response that, that the media was, didn't quite know what to do with. They, they had never seen anything like this, this, this forgiveness of a, of a gunman, of a shooter. What do we do with that? By a community-wide people going and offering signs of support and love and forgiveness 
And so in light of this forgiving response, media outlets began calling it the nickel mines miracle instead of the nickel mines tragedy. And I want to say to you today that that's what forgiveness does. It rewrites the narrative of evil and it changes the world. And if you don't believe me, or maybe you're questioning it, would you look with me and gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ? You see, we don't refer to the cross as a tragedy, but killing an innocent man is both tragic and evil. But we don't look at the cross as a tragedy. And why not? We look at the cross as the ultimate sign of God's love. And that's because while, they were, while humanity was doing all of their violence against Jesus on the cross, Jesus did not respond with hate and vengeance, but rather he responded with love and forgiveness. And it rewrote the narrative of that Friday. So that now, in just a, few mo- a couple of months, as we head toward Easter, we'll gather for what we will call a Good Friday service. My daughter, Jaden, she's sharp. <laughs> when she was very young, or she, when she was young, she said, she got this puzzled look on her face. It was right around, right around Easter. She got this puzzled look on her face. She said, why do we call it Good Friday? Isn't that the day that Jesus died? I said, yeah, it is. And I had an opportunity to explain to her as best I could at the time that the reason we call it Good Friday is because the narrative has been rewritten by the forgiveness of Christ. Amen? It's good news. Forgiveness rewrites the narrative of evil. You see, the Amish community overcame evil in the days that followed that tragedy, but they didn't overcome evil by exacting vengeance. They overcame evil in the only way that evil is overcome. And I want you to hear this, church. They overcame evil in the only way that evil is overcome, which is through love and forgiveness. That's how we do it. Because guess what? Evil is fueled by vengeance and unforgiveness, bitterness and hate. These things just only put fuel to the fire of evil in our lives, in our culture, in our world. But evil, when it comes into contact with forgiveness and love, is exhausted and it cannot continue. My invitation to you today then is to rewrite the narrative, to rewrite your narrative through the beauty and power of forgiveness. And as I've already mentioned, you probably have all kinds of questions about how forgiveness works. And we'll try to tackle some of those next week. And in particular, we're gonna talk about ideas on how to forgive and how forgiveness actually works. Here's what I've tried to do in this series. Went by quick, didn't it? Just one one week left. Here's what I've tried to do. I've tried to avoid empty platitudes. 
but rather allow us to fully enter into the difficult nature of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ calls us to. And just be honest about that. And, and let's just say and recognize that as the people of God that he has called us to an incredible, radical, reckless, unrelenting forgiveness because that's what we have received in Jesus Christ. But guess what, church? It isn't easy. It isn't easy. And one of the things that we'll talk about next week, and I'll re- so I'll repeat this next week, but one of the things that is so important to realize is that forgiveness is not a one-off event. It's not just a, a prayer of I forgive you and then I'm done. But depending on how deep the pain is, there is a forgiveness that happens every day. It's a giving over. It's a handing over to God. God, I was harmed. I was, I was pained in this way. I give that to you and I forgive them. And then you release it. And the next day you release it. And the next day you release it. And the next day you release it. Until a little while you can go a little bit more than a few days and then you release it again. And then it comes up again with a smell or a word or a trigger or a something or you see that person and you never wanted to see them again but you run into them in Target and you let it go again, right? Target or anywhere else. (laughs) Some of you are like, why Target? Uh, Because I'm there all the time. Um, Right? So... It's not a one-time thing, but you do it over and over and over again and you give it to God. I need to let us go, but here's what I want to invite us to do before we come to communion is I want us to join together in saying the Lord's Prayer. We've talked about the centrality of forgiveness to the Christian faith and I think it's no, no accident, no, no coincidence that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, there's a very central line Forgive us our sins. It doesn't stop there, does it? As we forgive those who have sinned against us. And so we're gonna pray the whole prayer, but, uh, but really hone in and pay attention to those words. So uh, Jeremy, can you show the words up on the screen of the Lord's Prayer and let's pray this together and I'll give us some instructions for communion today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Amen. I've never made the connection that deliver us from evil is right after the call of forgiveness. That's how it's done. We are delivered from evil and evil is overcome through forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.